Uh, we begin uh, our Inspiring Saints series today. Uh, we've been doing this series probably over the last, I think we've done it at least two times before. Um, and it's to me, it's a fantastic um, opportunity for us, um, not only to, to look back at our heritage, but, but to also recognise afresh um, who we are as the church, who we are as, as God's people, um, because indeed we are actually all saints. Um, we don't generally like to be called saints because we think it's embarrassing, um, maybe because we think, oh, I'm, I'm not actually that good. But um, we find as we delve into looking at saints that no one has been perfect and, and really it's, it's all about what God has done in that person um, and in, in us as, as a church. Today, we're, we're looking at a special person called Martin Luther, and um, it's, it's just the right time to be looking at, at Martin Luther's life, because on October the 31st, that's this Tuesday, 2017, we celebrate Reformation Day, okay, and it's 500-year anniversary. Um, for those of you, I, I'll tell you as we go along what that day, what happened on that exact day. But um, so forget Halloween this Tuesday, okay? It's, it's Reformation Day. Um, all right. It, it marks, uh, like I said, the 500th anniversary. So a really big, um, big anniversary there. And uh, for some of us, we might go, oh, yes, the Reformation, I know all about it. Others will go, yeah, I think I've heard that word before. Doesn't mean much to me. Um, it's actually a really um, good thing to, to learn a little bit about because um, it speaks into our heritage as a Church of Christ church, um, but also it's really important for us to, to understand and to see the way God has moved um, through history. So this morning we start our Inspiring Saints series with Martin Luther. Now, the Reformation, uh, just in a nutshell was a major recovery and renewal movement that happened in the church, which was a great thing worthy of celebrating, but also tragically divided the Western church for all these years um, between the Catholics and the Protestants. Okay, um, The Reformation is way bigger than Martin Luther. Uh, important things happened before him and after him that we're all part of this big movement. But there's something about this singular person's story that I reckon encapsulates it for us. So uh, through Martin Luther, really the ball got rolling to reform the church, not only changing church history, but really world history for the centuries to come. It's, it's that big. It's that important an event. Um, in many ways, this movement marks the beginnings of many of the things that we see in the, that make up the modern world. So, this is more than a history lesson. This is a story to remind us of what the church is and what it isn't. Okay, It's also a reminder to us that the church must always be reforming. We're always a work in progress in every era. And the story of the Reformation also reminds us that when the church lets us down, when the church seems to itself be losing its way, even in its darkest hour, God is working through us 
ordinary folk who remain committed to it in extraordinary, um, extraordinarily powerful ways to bring change. So that, that's, um, that's a, an inspirational thing already, isn't it? Martin Luther really had no idea that he was going to make such a big impact um, and that he would light up Western civilization. Really, Luther, um, I've heard him be described like this, and I, I think it's a good, good description, that, that his life was like, it's like he's a blind man climbing the bell tower in a church, and then he began to lose his balance. So he reached out to grab something um, to stabilize himself, and what he grabbed was the rope that, for the church bell to ring, and he accidentally woke the whole town. That, that's, the, that's the kind of impression, okay? So now we look back on him as this great man, but really it was God at work through him, and, and we, that's why we celebrate. Okay, so let's, let's begin the story. In 1483, Martin Luther was born in the town of Wittenberg in Germany. Martin's father managed some mines in the district, and so they were a hard-working family, and they were reasonably well-off. Now, in these late kind of medieval times, it was about 150 years since the Black Plague, okay, which might seem like, hey, that was a long time back, but almost a third of Europe's population died at that time. So you can imagine the impact that would have on a society even 150 years later. And the whole, the whole society had a very keen and fearful sense of death. Um, and particularly concerned about the about eternal life and about hell. In this context, um, you can see, for example, when Martin Luther was born, very next day he gets baptized. Don't want to waste time because his eternity is at stake. You know, so that's the kind of feel that was in the air. Uh, as Martin grew up, his parents fairly quickly realized this guy's a pretty smart cookie. Um, and so they invested in his education significantly. I think there's a picture of, um, of medieval, uh, maybe a school, who knows. <laughs> but um, so as Martin grew up, yep, uh, he, he went to the best schools, really. Uh, they had, his, his parents had great ambition for him. And the plan was for him to go on to become a lawyer. And then he could help in the family business. And that would be really great. So Martin followed all, all this through very dutifully. But then something happened when he was 22. He was on his way home to the university where he had just started studying law. And a huge thunderstorm breaks out. The kind of thunderstorm where you don't want to be out in the open. Uh, there's a real danger of getting struck by lightning. And Martin becomes so scared as he weathers this storm, that at some point he cries out to God and he says, I don't want to die. If, if, you, if you save me, I'll become a monk. <laughs> All right? Now, as the story is told today, it can seem a bit random. Like, that's a bit of a weird prayer, right? You know, who does that? Um, it, it sort of comes across like, okay, in this sudden moment, out of the blue, he blurts it out. And then um, he makes this deal with God. And then later he says, oh, you know, whoops, um, I said that, so I guess I'd better um, just follow up on that. And, um, and, then, and then he changes his whole life. But um, I don't think it really happened that way. Uh, 
it, it helps to remember that fearful atmosphere of the day. Luther had been um, thinking about God and, and really haunted by God and death and eternity throughout his childhood. And at the age of 22, he comes to this decisive moment in this storm where he gets some perspective. Um, is, is what I'm doing the best thing I can do with my life? And imagine not having the peace of God and believing very vividly in this chance of, of going to a place called hell. And um, this was very scary sort of stuff. And so Luther was very aware of, 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 this, of this fear, of this kind of what, like all these questions about life and about death. And so on that day, as he was on the heath in that storm, he was really thinking, if I die now, um, where will I go? What, what can I do in my life now to really ensure that I'm, that I'm with God? And so he decides that he has to pursue the ultimate questions of life and of death and of God. So two months later, Martin enters a monastery and his parents are furious, as you could imagine, and devastated because they dedicated a lot to see their son um, grow and thrive and become a lawyer. But Luther makes this change because he felt, as many people in those days did, that there's only one way that you can be sure to get to heaven, and that is by trying harder than everybody else. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever tried that as your approach. Um, the thinking of the day was that if you really want to be sure that this scary thing called eternity, um, hap- you know, that, the, that what happens is, is what you want to happen, then you need to get serious. You need to become a priest or a monk or a nun And so Martin Luther says, I'm not taking any chances. Here I go. So he goes to the monastery and he works harder than anybody else to try and earn his salvation, earn his place of acceptance before God. These early days as a monk, they're almost funny, except for how gut-wrenching it is for Luther. You can't laugh because you feel like, oh man, this guy, he was really in pain. For example, when it came to confession, Martin had this belief that if you die and, and there's any sin that's unconfessed, then you, you can't be sure where you're going to go. Um, and so he, he just had so much pressure on him and he would go to his confessor very regularly and confess everything, every stray thought, every moment of pride. And uh, his confessor who was overseeing him be, was becoming... Kind of, he was going crazy listening to Luther's confessions hour after hour. And so he would say, just come here for serious things, you know, like if you murdered someone or if you commit adultery, but otherwise I don't want to see you, you know. Um, give me something real or get out of here. But you could see um, that there was this real issue for Luther. He was not content. He had no peace about where he stood before God. He had no sense of belonging no sense of a lasting salvation that was his. Really, the church had led him to this system where if he screwed up the tiniest bit, all would be lost. And so he worked that system harder than anybody, but he got no peace, no joy, no freedom. And in time, he began to think, 
this is not working. There's something wrong. Uh, At one point, his confessor said to him, you clearly think God hates you and he's angry at you and that you have to do your dance to appease him. You think that God is like a bad guy. And Luther had to admit it. And he also had to admit that he'd sort of come to hate this God as he understood him, who would make him jump through all these hoops and never give him a moment's um, solace. Now, if this is if this is sounding anything like your experience of God, which I hope it isn't, um, I want to tell you that this is not the God that we worship. Um, if Luther's experience of anxiety and, and tension rings bells for you, then you've um, you've been thinking that uh, if you've been thinking that God is watching over you and uh, ready to condemn you at every step, I want to make it plain to you that that is a false caricature of God, and it's a, and it is a lie. The the key breakthrough for Luther was found when he started to dig into the scriptures, and funnily enough, nobody was really doing that in those days, partly because the scriptures were only available in Latin, and you had to be educated if you wanted to read it, but also um, it was just yeah it, it was just kind of the under, underlying stuff that you don't read and, and the, the focus was on all the other things the church was doing. So the Bible wasn't focused on and was largely not read. And it was so very different from today where, you know, it's so easy for us. We, we really take it for granted um, how available God's word is to us. And Martin Luther, being a, a pretty smart guy, he was a sup- superb scholar. He was trying to find something that would bring him peace. Do you guys know the verse in Philippians 4 where it says, be anxious for nothing? Luther was anxious for everything. He was filled with anxiety. He didn't have a clue about how to have peace with this God that judged him. But then around the time of, around 1517, Luther rediscovers God's grace towards him. So I'm just going to give you three um, texts from the Bible just to kind of give you a picture of what Luther discovered and how it just completely changed his perspective. Okay, um, These are things that he's discovering about salvation and really about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of the church. So the first, the first one is Ephesians 2. Hopefully we can get it up on the screen. Um, verses 8 to 10. And this is really what he, what he discovers, what he rediscovers is God's grace. So Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So God doesn't demand that we earn our goodness until we're up to a certain standard and then we're in, from the beginning to the end, salvation is God's work in us, not ours. Through grace, we are drawn into a personal relationship with God. God's grace sets us free from that intolerable burden of trying to earn our salvation and it frees us to serve others. Can, if, as, you, as you're hearing this, try and imagine yourself having lived for five years in a monastery 
being tormented about this. And then you hear these words from, from God, um, just the, the change that that would have in you. The second thing um, that I wanted to, to mention is our faith. So Romans 1.17 was a very special verse for Martin Luther. And it says, This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So God in his grace is shaping us as we trust him to do it. Okay, so that's what that's our job is, is that's what faith is, is trusting that God is shaping us and we are drawn into this personal relationship with God where he's He's, he's at work in us. We're opening ourselves for him to do that because we trust him. That's faith. In faith, you are made right. You are free in Christ to know God and to grow and to become like him. What a beautiful picture. Lastly, uh, the, th- the third text, God's glory is our strength. So the second, second Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 5 to 7 says this. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Now, Luther lived in a time when the church saw itself as a great power in itself. Okay, The church was, was in itself a great power. It, it, it was in collaboration with a state it had all the power. And this, this scripture is saying the only, real, the only power of the church is, is for God's glory to be um, at work in it and through it. Okay, that's, that's, our, that's our strength. So the church is great because collectively we are the vessel of grace and freedom where the Holy Spirit is shaping us and pouring us out on the world. The church really loses track of itself when it gets its authority from the wrong places, from prestige, from the state, from dominating and enforcing and and pressuring. We find our strength when we live for God's glory. So Martin Luther has these kind of this three-pronged sort of thing, like God's grace is, is what I rest on. And my, and, and my faith is my response, and I live for God's glory. That's it. When, when we start to do that, when we start to live out that gospel, then, yes, we are fragile containers of God, of God's glory, but we start to be people growing in relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We start to be people known for our grace and forgiveness. We start to become people able to approach criticism with humility and sensitivity. We start to become people confident that God's love is stronger 
we start to become people living courageously for God's glory. So when Luther discovered this, you could just imagine him doing a backflip. It just blew his mind. But as he finds this treasure, he also wonders, how could we have missed this? How could the church somehow have covered this up with religious requirements? And we're all trying and trying, and now I've found this amazing discovery, the grace of Jesus Christ, and this is it. I've found it. Um, this was like a big earthquake for him, but it was like, how, how do I, I... I need to get this out. I need to get the word out to other people. This is where things really started happening, okay? So as a monk, Luther had priestly duties. He was, um, he was hearing people's confessions. Um, he was, you know, doing mass and those sorts of things. And people would come in to him and they would say that they've done this and this and this. They've done, you know, these things that they've done wrong. And Luther would instruct them on what to do for penance. So he might say, oh, you need to say these prayers Maybe give some money to the poor. Um, here's the, do these things and it'll help you get past your sin. Okay, that was the way, the way they did things. And um, one of the things that people could do in those days was buy a thing called an indulgence. Okay, so this may have started with good intentions, um, you know, that it's a good thing to give money to the church, um, that that's a good deed. But quickly it became like a business where church leaders were preaching indulgences. They were get, trying to get people to buy these indulgences. And, and it was a way of collecting money. So, you know, 800 miles away, the Vatican needs um, some, some money for something. And, and so they would be collecting, um, collecting money around the empire. And when people came in to Luther to confess, and he would give them things to do for penance, they would go, oh, no, no, no. I bought this. I bought this get out of jail free card, you see. So um, I don't really, I don't think I need to do anything about this because, um, you know, I've bought this ticket, this magic golden ticket. Um, and Luther just was, you know, he's thinking, oh, this is corrupting people. They think that they can buy their way into heaven. This is way out of hand. Um, we need to do something about this. At this point, he wasn't thinking, I'm going to go and battle it out with the Pope. He was just a humble monk. Um, he loved the Pope. He loved the church. But he could see that something was majorly wrong. And so he wanted to have a debate. So in order to do that, what you do is you put up a notice on the bulletin board, and which happens to be the, the, the door of the cathedral. And you would say, there's going to be a debate on this subject, and you'd list down the things... Um, that you want to be included in the debate. So Luther lists 95 points, okay? And, and they were called theses, so the 95 theses. And um, he put it on the bulletin board, which was the wooden door of the church. Now, it's funny how history works, but that is the, that is the, the thing that he did 500 years ago on October the 31st. He, he, he nailed those, or he may have even pasted, but everybody says he nailed it. Um, he, he nailed these 95 theses to the door. Okay. Now, when we look back, we, we see this as the moment when this one man stood up against the establishment and nailed his objections to the door of the church. You know, yeah, 
right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the feel of it. But it was actually just a guy tacking something to a bulletin board. So it's funny how, you know, how that sort of works. Um, at this stage, Luther wanted humbly to suggest that we have a problem. And as a theologian, he wanted um, there to be, uh, he had a sense of responsibility to make the church aware of the issues that he could see. The issue of um, indulgences really spoke into the bigger issue of how the systems of the church were effectively keeping people from the good news of God's grace and salvation. But what happens is not what Luther expected. The situation quickly escalates in ways that he couldn't see coming. Instead of the, the response he was hoping for, like a, some sort of scholarly debate um, which could, you know, could lead to a healthy process of reform, um, things got out of hand. Firstly, a number of his opponents demonised him and they said, you know, basically they said, shut up, how dare you criticise, you're sounding like a heretic. So Luther starts to write some essays to try and defend himself um, but then they're taken the wrong way too and um, he writes some things then that are maybe not so humble. Um, he makes he makes things, you could say he makes... Um, you know, he tweets things he shouldn't have tweeted, you could say. Um, he kept things, like he kept thinking all this time, if I could just get this information maybe to the Pope or to someone higher, then he will see that this church, um, that his church has not been doing well. Um, but unfortunately, the Pope of Martin Luther's day also did not deal with him well. So it continued to escalate. And Luther suddenly found himself more and more obliged to say things that he would not have needed to say if a more respectful and truth-seeking atmosphere had been created. So on both sides, there was this digging in of heels and battle lines drawn up. On the church's side, there was an insistence that they could never be wrong and that Luther was an upstart. But Luther had, had rediscovered the grace of Jesus Christ and that it was not being taught so he felt he had an obligation before God to make it known. Luther wanted a fair debate and he believed that the truth would win. He believed that God's people, uh, sorry, he believed that good people on both sides would see what he was saying and that there would some, something somehow would, would happen. But that's not the way it worked, unfortunately. In a broken world, Luther found himself dealing with people who were so angry at the controversy he had caused, even though that wasn't his intention. So finally, in 1521, he was called before the emperor. So this is the Holy Roman Emperor, pretty big deal. And um, once a year, they had this congress of princes and, and bishops and nobles, and um, they laid his books before him and they said, you need to, to recant, you need to back down on the things you've said. And really what they were trying to do is intimidate Luther. But Luther, he was, he was, just a, he was a fairly bullheaded kind of guy. And he also was absolutely scrupulous about the truth, about being true. And um, so he famously says the line, here I stand, I can do no other. And he refuses to recant. Now, it's a, this is the bit of, of the story that's, that's really tragic. You know, I, I just think, imagine if they'd have taken Luther's 
um, ideas seriously. And if there was some sort of commitment to open truth, um, sorry, an open truth-seeking inquiry, there may have been, you know, a great reformation and renewal from within the church. But unfortunately, that was not um, to be. Um, so just understand what I'm saying here. I'm not beating up on the Catholic Church. I think any time you have a church, any time you have human beings, you could say, you need to kind of be vigilant, you need to make room for self-criticism. We understand that the church at that time was particularly in need of renewal. So Luther is declared a heretic, and then the emperor declares him an outlaw. But luckily, he has some friends in high places who sort of kidnap him away, and he goes into hiding. Um, really, the only reason why Luther's story is, is bigger than others who, others who went before him, such as Tyndale and Wycliffe, who you may have heard of, um, who were actually burnt at the stake, um, is that there was, it's all about technology. See, the printing press was, was a, a fairly recent invention. And Luther was able to write what he was thinking and it was printed off very cheaply and sold to the public. And there was a hunger for his ideas. The common folks, as well as people in high places, they said, we've noticed these corruptions and hypocrisy and this man speaks for us. This is right. We need to fix this. So suddenly the message got out. The horses, you could say, were out of the barn and there was no going back. So even if they had have killed Luther at this point, the ideas were out there. Um, but Luther escaped imprisonment partly because his local prince was partial to him and for the rest of his life, he was really able to oversee and implement his ideas of reform. And as he did this, more dukes and princes from other provinces um, accepted his ways and it grew. This, this movement grew. Eventually, it grew and grew across Europe and that became, they became known as the Protestant Church. So um, it became the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Through the Reformation, the centre of faith began to shift from, those, from, from this idea of those in charge tell me what to do to God's powerfully living in each person within the church community. So through Luther, the Bible was restored to the heart of the Christian life and worship. He re-established the importance of family. He actually went on to marry a nun and they had children. Um, he, he also established, re-established the value of music, the dignity of human labour. But most importantly of all, he recovered that truth that from grace alone and through faith alone, a person is made right in the eyes of God. And actually, you can, you can go back, if you trace back from those ideas, other great ideas such as democratic governments, freedom of religion, individual responsibility and conscience, dignity of every human being. Um, these core values that are really held at the, at the heart of Western society stem from the Reformation movement. So let's not take for granted this, this great work of God, even though at the same time we have to um, have a, a tinge of sadness about the, the division that, that occurred in the church. Just as a, as a side, even though I'm probably going a bit long, um, yesterday when I was in the city and there was this special Reformation 
celebration. Um, it was really fantastic because after that, in in Fed Square, there was a um, a sort of continuation of the festivities, and it, and it was really like a church service, I guess, at Fed Square. Um, but it it included um, the Catholic uh, like the, the Catholic people as well. There was there was a group. Um, the Catholic Charismatic Movement came, and and we and we shared in this service together, and it it just really felt like the most beautiful, um, I guess, reconnecting, um, reuniting, um, in in a really profound way in the middle of our city. So um, I, I'm still I still have a few goosebumps going up for for that because really it has been 500 years of of division. Luther was a flawed man, and he was a bullheaded man. He knew when he knew what was right. And he was going to move ahead like a bull at a gate. God used him amazingly to, to, because of this personality that he had to bring this reform into the world. Um, when his church started to figure out for themselves, unfortunately, that, um, that now they had new power, they, they actually, you know, you, you, you look into, into Luther's sort of last years of his life he became more and more cantankerous as a person and there was more and more decisions that kind of sounded like the exact thing that he was trying to get away from. And um, you, you see this real, um, I don't know, this real, I guess, slow change uh, through, through history. It was, it, it was very difficult for churches to give up that power that they'd had over others. So in response to hearing this story today, um, and just recognising uh, that, like I said earlier, that the church is always in reform and always needs to be in reform. Um, I, I thought it'd be good for us to to spend a bit of time looking at um, how we can participate in a healthy church today. And I've just got the um, the points that I had up before. This is um, just remembering that we are... As a church, we are jars of clay. We are imperfect and fragile, and yet God in his grace gives us the capacity to hold and to pour out his life-giving treasure into the world. And that if, if we are able to do that, then we are people growing in relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We become people known for our grace and forgiveness people able to approach criticism with humility and sensitivity, people confident that God's love is stronger, people living courageously for God's glory. This is, this is the only power that we really need to ever show. And, that, and that's what the church looks like when it's being the church. So how can we be a healthy church today? Um, how have we experienced these treasures of, of, uh, of being the church um, in our lives? And what is God saying to me, to us, about deepening our experience of church at Northern? Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave you with a little bit of time where you can respond and um, you can get out your response cards and I encourage you to, to write something down. Just um, considering those, those questions. So the questions are, how have I experienced these treasures of the church? And what is God saying to me about deepening my experience of the church at Northern?
maybe just look through those and, and just consider what, which ones of those you've, you've experienced in your life and which ones you, you want more of. All right, I'm going to leave you with um, just some music for a bit.